0: Hello dear listeners, welcome to Semaphore Cut, a podcast for developers about building great products. I'm Olga, a product marketing manager at Semaphore. In the new episode of Semaphore Cut, Darko, the podcast host, interviews Daniel Terhorst-North, software developer and consultant. Daniel gives us thoughts on common testing errors and how to simplify tests. I hope you enjoy this conversation and let's dive in.
1: Daniel, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks very much for having me. Right, thank you. You're the man that don't need an introduction, but I'm going
2: to ask you (laughs) to give us it anyway. So, okay, I'll try and be brief. Um, So I've been in development in software for around 30 years, um, a little over 30 years. And for the middle chunk of that, for about eight years in the middle of that, I was with ThoughtWorks, which is a now kind of global software consulting firm. They were, in the early 2000s, they were very much pioneers of agile methods and particularly agile methods into larger organizations. So I spent a chunk of time in the early to mid 2000s um, doing that. And along the way, I accidentally invented behavior-driven development, um, which started as a coaching tool and soon developed its own momentum. And then some other folks got involved as well. And it kind of became a bit of a movement. And I'll be honest, most of the interesting things in the BDD space haven't been me. I guess my main interest during the the latter part of my time at ThoughtWorks was around uh, build and release engineering. So I was very closely involved in, I guess, what's now called DevOps, like the birth of uh, continuous delivery. And... And one of my proud moments in my career is I hired Jez Humble. (laughs) I hired Jez Humble into ThoughtWorks as a as a rookie uh, developer, uh, and well, I guess now we call it DevOps, and then just watch him become this, this incredible, awesome, well, continue to become this incredibly awesome person. And then I left ThoughtWorks at the end of 2009. So it's a, it's quite a long time ago now, so I guess uh, 12, 12, 13 years ago. And uh, then I spent a couple of years working in a trading firm on some crazy low latency algo software systems where a lot of my later work kind of Um, the genesis of that happened, which is what I now call software faster. So this is patterns and behaviors and techniques for writing very high-quality software um, very quickly and sustainably. And then in the last 10 years, uh, I've been independent. And mostly what I do these days is if you've got to pan back from the code, you've got the team and then you pan back from the team, you've got teams of teams and then you've got the whole organization. And in the last 10 years or so, I've been looking at that space. How do organizations go fast? Uh, How do organizations keep that sense of like small team autonomy and excitement and energy and quality uh, at scale without getting in each other's way and without having this kind of centralized bottleneck of decision making so that's that's where you find me now
1: a lot of very successful teams end up having huge amounts of tests and uh, they still want to retain that fast feedback loop we are here to help them but there is kind of so much that we can do. There is that huge, complex uh, test suite that has been grown over many years. And the uh, testing pyramid in a lot of cases end up ends up being inverted. So with that kind of introduction and uh, a presentation of a problem, <laughs> I would want to hear your experiences, your advices, and if you at the end can also potentially introduce us to, to your course, how it in practice works.
2: Yes, I think the testing pyramid itself is, again, one of these ideas that looks really appealing on paper, because it makes a good diagram. But I think generally it's poor advice, right? <laughs> and Or at least the way it's applied, the way it's implemented generally is, is poor advice the other my other go to of being a great poster with really bad advice is the whole git flow model of software development and having branch per feature i think there's a you know we could have a whole side topic on why that is a dreadful idea but let's stay with the testing pyramid so the the idea with the testing pyramid is that you have lots and lots of what we call unit tests a much smaller number of say uh, integration tests and then a handful of functional end-to-end kind of tests. And and what tends to happen is, because we have these record playback tools like Selenium, or we can codify tests into English or natural language-looking things like, Cucumber or spec flow that we tend to end up over-indexing on those. We end up with loads and loads of these, and then then the receive wisdom then is, well, look, these things are slow running. You've got hundreds of them or thousands of them, and that's what's slowing everything down. So now we go to the cloud, and we have a Semaphore, we have Circle, we have you know all these kind of um, parallel, massive cloud-based solutions. Ironically, this doesn't actually help. <laughs> it's like a painkiller. So it allows me to get work done, but it doesn't address any of the underlying problem. So the first thing is the idea that we that this testing pyramid is a good idea. So yes, if you have uh, you know unit tests or rather code level tests, generally will run faster than full stack tests, especially when you're running through some kind of UI like a browser. That's you know that's measurably true. However, what we tend to have is, by and large, the things we call unit tests are not unit tests. A unit test had a vet has a very specific, clear definition in the testing canon. And the thing you're writing when you do TDD or BDD is not a unit test. It's a code example that's going to guide your design, right? And for, it's a model client. You're writing a little model client. And if you're doing it right, you're writing a little model client for some code that doesn't exist yet. And then we have this, this model client and then we write the code and then we can use this model client to check that the code we've written does what we think. And at that point, we can say, oh, look, it's a test. So up until then, it was a specification. It was, a, it was a, uh, an example to guide our design. As soon as we've got the code, we can now use it to, to test the code. Great. What we have is not what any self-respecting software tester would consider a decent automated test. For a start, it's, a, it's typically a single data point. You know, it's testing, these values go in and it does this thing. So the things we write to guide our design in TDD or BDD, by and large, are not good automated tests. So that's the first thing to get on the table. The second thing to get on the table is this, and Kent Beck answered this beautifully on Stack Overflow. I don't know if you've seen this, uh, This, um, and we can put it in the in the notes for the, for the podcast. But there's a lovely question on Stack Overflow called how deep are your unit tests and none other than Kent Beck answers and they're going oh he's going to talk about 100% test coverage and he says I write as few tests as I can possibly get away with because I don't get paid to write tests and it's true he's not a tester he's a programmer and he's writing code so he uses these things to guide his development second data point third data point as soon as you start writing TDD examples that mock the interactions. It's like double entry bookkeeping. I've now got all the place where I've written my code in a test somewhere. I've now got exactly the same list of interactions. So rather than the tests making it safe for me to change code or get allow me to have to change code with confidence, they they now absolutely inhibit me changing code. As soon as I change the interaction because I want things to happen in a different order, I change a dependency, a load of tests break. You get this brittleness which should never have happened. So maya culpa, don't do that. Right. And the third point is, or maybe the fourth, is this, is the received wisdom that higher level tests, so functional tests, integration tests, should run any slower, noticeably any slower than code level unit tests. If I am putting together my code, my APIs, my components in a reasonable way, and those components are reasonably small and self-contained, then I should be able to test the whole component and think of that as a unit. And when you get into, I call it a replaceable component architecture, people call it microservices, that's the term that caught on. When you have a bunch of small components and you are testing the behavior of a small component, then this wonderful thing happens. Unit testing, functional testing, Integration testing, application testing, all of these things collapse into the same space of just testing. Okay. So the test pyramid itself, I think, is a a bit of an artificial, it's a it's vestigial. It's it's how we used to think about this stuff 10, 15 years ago. So let's get back to your question, which is so you know, these things take a really long time. What do we do about this? The first thing I do with anything that's a performance issue or anything that's a that's a process bottleneck like, is look at where the time goes. And for a lot of this, it turns out that the time is in the tooling and not in your application at all. And instead, and I've done this, I'll give you an example. We did this um, with, with one client. They had literally thousands of, in this case, spec flow. They called them BDDs. But they had the BDDs and they would run all the BDDs and the BDDs took many hours to run and there were thousands of them. So I took a look at some of them, right? And they're practically like copy, paste, copy, paste, copy, paste with a few lines different. So then I introduced them to Python and PyTest. And I, I love PyTest. It's it's my absolute test, favorite testing framework because there's practically nothing to it, right? Now, the reason there's nothing to it is because the people who designed PyTest have put in an insane amount of hard work. To make it look like, so it's actually, there's a lot to it, but your usage of it, you don't have a a fixture, you don't have a test class, you don't have a, you have a function, and the function starts with the word test underscore. That's pretty much it. It doesn't even have all those assert equals assert true assert blah because Python has the keyword assert baked into it. And so what PyTest does is it hijacks that and says, you're probably going to use that for asserting, aren't you? So, you know, assert value one equals value two. And, and when it fails as well, it gives you a beautiful, very clear readout. And so very quickly we had, not only did we now have a fraction of the assets to manage, we could get rid of hundreds of these BDDs, right? and replace it with like, you know, a few hundred lines of well-structured Python. But also this thing ran in a fraction of the time, you know, seconds, literally, instead of tens of minutes, because actually the code itself was good. But they didn't know that because of so much crafting getting to the code that they thought they had a problem. So while I think, you know, tools like Semaphore and Circle and all these, I think they're, they're fantastic that these things exist. As a kind of painkiller, we also need the other side of it, which is let's simplify this.
0: Microservices architecture is all the rage these days. But do you know what it really means and how to implement it to empower your teams to make the best decision for the problem at hand? On the Semaphore blog, you can learn about microservices and how to take advantage of features like test reports, on a repo, and Docker support to build, test, and deploy your microservice application at scale. Head over to semaphoreci.com/blog for more information and happy reading.
1: It is true that there are so many redundant and so expensive, so expensive tests. But the feeling that people, you know, immediately start uh, having is that they are using that confidence. So I am now be the person that will be removing, you know, a bunch of those, replacing them with equally good or better tests that are true tests. But will something slip through into the production? Do you have like some words of advice with dealing that level of anxiety?
2: Yeah, you're exactly right to call out that anxiety. And the way I describe it is this. Tests are documentation, okay? More documentation isn't better. Better documentation is better. So if I can look at all of these hundreds of tests and I can say, in this haystack, in this haystack of tests, where are the needles, right? Where are the bits of business knowledge, domain knowledge, application knowledge hidden away that tell me about things that might go wrong here? And if I can understand very quickly what I'm likely to mess up, I can manage that. And so I use the phrase enough upfront thinking, where thinking is all of it, analysis, design, testing, architecture, all of those things, all of those conversations, decisions we need to make in order that we get out the gate safely. Enough upfront thinking, enough upfront design, enough upfront testing. So let's take a look at the, this huge pile of, of tests we've got now, which aren't tests, they're feature files full of instructions somewhere in there is some activity that should give me some confidence about this application that I wouldn't have otherwise, right? Where in amongst all of this is the stuff? Where is the good stuff? And so now what I'm, and this is what I'm saying to the testing team, you know this domain, you know this product, you know, your, your role as testers is to be much, much more risk averse about this than I am. So I want you to be anxious. Right? If you're not anxious, I'm not sure I trust you, yeah? So let's talk about your anxiety. Let's, let's work together to understand where in this huge pile of stuff that you probably inherited. You know, this has been going on for literally years and you joined the team six months ago, right? This isn't your fault. <laughs> but unfortunately, this is all you've got. And what you have quite rightly reasoned is having all of this is better than having nothing at all right? That's probably a reasonable guess. But that's not, it's not a binary choice, right? Those are two points on a very wide spectrum. So now let's figure out where on there we think is a sensible place to be. And so that's where we start the conversation, right? Let's take these tests, you know, these, these, these um, feature files, and let's figure out what it is they're telling us. And let's figure out where's the signal and where's the noise. And if we can just pull out the signal and put that into something with much less noise, then we all agree we haven't lost any confidence. You mentioned BDD
1: and how it came about, your pieces and the contribution of others. You presented it
2: nicely. But yeah, what are some of the other things that you have been uh, up to? As I said, what I've done is pan back, really, and I'm looking at how teams can work effectively, how teams of teams can work effectively effectively. There are two parts to this. There's the, um, to, to use the, the Peter Drucker quote, there's the doing the right thing and the doing the thing right. So if you think of any kind of organization change, whether it's how do we scale or whether it's we're already quite big, how do we, how do we go faster? How do we become more effective? What tends to happen is you, you know, or you know, the senior execs in an organization go out and buy a solution and say, right, we're going to implement a uh, safe or less or uh, distribute a uh, dad or something disciplined agile and they and they kind of bring in this solution and they say right we're going to implement X like that's going to solve things. I really struggle with this because what you have now is a solution looking for a problem. It doesn't matter what your goal is, it doesn't matter what your situation is, uh implement safe. You know, pay my consultants a huge amount of money to implement a framework. And you go, great. So now I have all the problems I already had and a framework. And then you know then they roll out and then a few years later the next one rolls in. So I've been looking at this differently and saying well Okay, if you're going to scale from, you know, 30 people to 150 people or you know, 150 people to 500 people, or you're already at 5,000 people or, you know, wherever we're starting. And the reason you're talking to me or the reason you're talking to anyone is you want things to be better. You've decided there's some idea of better in your head. And then, well, let's start there. Let's talk about better. Let's talk about what behaviors would happen in your better organization, in your target organization that you don't have now. What are people doing in it? Um, Let's talk about the organisation as a system. What can it do? What characteristics does it have that it doesn't have now? So we talk about, I call it ABC, attitudes, behaviours and characteristics. So how are people going to, you know, what what, what attitudes are they going to wear? That's like your culture, behaviour, what are people going to do because of those attitudes? And characteristics, what's your organisation going to be capable of because of those behaviours? And then you get this lovely virtuous cycle. And I'm calling this transformation as product. So we think of the transformation, you know, the product is about behaviour change of your staff, your employees, and yourself, the people in the organisation. What's their target behaviour? What's the outcome here? Now we can work backwards and say, right, therefore, let's do the gap analysis. What needs to change to get us from here to there? And only then are you ready to start. Now you can look at it as a theory of constraints thing, and you can say, right, of all the things we could start with, because there's many, many things, which of those things do we think is currently our biggest constraint is holding us back the most? Because let's start there and let's measure it. And so now I've got my framework I'm like, if you, I've got the do the right thing, then we get into do the thing right. And this is where I've talking I talk a lot about autonomy through alignment. So we want alignment of technology. You know, we all think about you know, architecture and tooling and design and things in similar ways. Uh, alignment of product. We all think we're building the same thing. Right? <laughs> alignment of leadership. You know, we all go about running the place the same way. Alignment of um, direction. So we think about OKRs and, and what, what we're all going to focus on next and what we're going to say not yet to. So what, what I'm a massive fan of and I've seen work really well is you you centralize the policy, but you federate the decision making. So you're going to have some kind of technical council or some kind of technical group forum made up of representatives across the organization who are going to come together and say, do you know what, this is this is how we should think about distributed systems. And we document that we articulate that we take that back into the teams, you create that alignment as policy as how we do things around here, and then you federate out the autonomy, you can do anything you like within those guardrails. And so, the, so your teams then have that sense of freedom and have that sense of movement. So that's the do the thing right. So, And those two things, when they come together, are super exciting. And then, again, you can underpin that with things like BDD, things you can pull in, ideas from out there that you can pull in to say what kinds of things go into our, our alignment soup, you know, How do we have an opinion about testing across the whole organization? How do we have an opinion about product management across the whole organization? You're creating those communities of practice that normalize that in a larger organization. And once we've got that, the chip implant, (laughs) once we've already got, once we've got that alignment, that sense of alignment, it means that any team knows it can go as fast as it likes and it's not going to trip over the other teams. And what that also gives us is, is an onboarding thing. Welcome, Darko. Welcome to the organization. Here's how we do stuff around here. And you're like, oh, thank heavens. Normally, I'm just you know flailing around for the first few months. But you've got a really clear structured onboarding thing, which means I'm going to be up and running really quickly. For people who want to learn more about this, follow your work on this topic, or you know,
1: just get help, can you give us an intro how that can happen?
2: Uh, but certainly if you look for, I've been giving a load of talks recently about transformation as product. I've been doing a, a pair talk with a brilliant lady called Anna Avaniak, who I've been working with for a bunch of years now about autonomy through alignment. And we call that meeting of mindsets is the name of the talk. There, there's a number of talks online that are talking about this. I'm, you can you can just hit me up. I'm Daniel at danielatdanloth.net. I'm very easy to find. And I'm on Twitter as well. And come and chat. Thank you, Daniel, for uh, sharing all this with us.
1: And uh, we'll make sure to include all those links and resources that you mentioned in the in the show
2: notes. Thank you so much. Good luck. Fantastic. Thank you very much.
0: What a great conversation. We learned a lot about how companies should conform their policies to allow teams to be flexible without running wild. Make sure to subscribe to Cut on your podcast player of choice so that you don't miss our new episodes. And stay tuned.